with non-fungible tokens, you know, with a couple dollars, you can basically, you know, buy them, uh, you know, on platforms like OpenSea, or you can go and get go and flow or buy some of our MotoGP stickers to just mm. get an experience with it. You can make your own NFTs on platforms like Mintable. Um, you know, my advice to everyone is get learning, get out there, take a look. This to us is as revolutionary, perhaps even more revolutionary as uh, the start of the internet, uh, you know, in, in the sort of the early 90s that had completely changed the world. We think non-fungible tokens uh, and blockchain will do the same for the next few decades to come. And just very briefly, because we're running out of time, tell me about Animoca Brands, what, what you do. Animoca Brands has been really one of the earliest companies involved in non-fungible tokens. We are originally a game company that now is basically sort of well, probably one of the biggest investors, but also operators in the non-fungible token space. We've been doing this for over three years. For those of you who understand NFTs, we were involved with CryptoKitties in the earliest of days, uh, which is sort of considered like the godfather of NFT projects. You know, we have the Sandbox, which is basically allowing people to play, you know, a game like Minecraft or Roblox, but true ownership. Imagine your children playing games and actually making a living for it for once, right? Uh, you know, those type of things. And we're really okay. big on play to earn. Great. Well, thanks very much for coming in, Yat, and telling us about that. My pleasure. That's Yat Su, co-founder and non-executive chairman of Animoca Brands. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. In the markets, the ASX 200 in Australia is up a third of a percent. The Nikkei 225 in Japan up about uh, two-thirds of a percent. Over in South Korea, stocks there also moving higher after the open. The Cosby up about half a percent. Looks like the Hang Seng is going to add about 0.5. 4% at the open in just under an hour's time. Thank you very much for listening. I'll be back tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Stay tuned for Back Chats with Hugh Chiverton and Ada Wong in just a moment. The weather forecast for today, mainly fine. Hot during the day with a maximum temperature of around 30 degrees. The outlook, cloudy with a few rain patches in the next few days. 25 degrees right now, 80% relative humidity. It's 8.32. Samantha Butler has the half-hour news. The government is planning a phased easing of coronavirus measures at restaurants from the end of the month, as well as allow bars to reopen for vaccinated staff and customers. The number of people allowed at a table will gradually be increased from the current four to up to 12 vaccinated customers. Simon Wong, the president of the Federation of Restaurants and Related Trades, urged people to get their shots so social distancing measures could be relaxed. But he said having all catering staff inoculated wouldn't be easy. Among the 250,000 staff in the catering industry, there are only about 30,000 staff have been vaccinated. Of course, uh, some people may not be suitable for vaccination. So I hope that the government can be more flexible in treating these kind of people. Mainlanders will also be exempt from Hong Kong quarantine under a quota system starting from the middle of next month, as long as they show a negative COVID-19 test result. Currently, Hong Kong residents returning from Guangdong are exempt from quarantine with a negative result, and this scheme will be expanded to cover residents from other provinces. The British government says it's reached its target of offering a first coronavirus vaccination dose to all adults in the UK who are in the main priority groups, including those aged over 50 and the clinically vulnerable. The Prime Minister Boris Johnson said a significant milestone had been passed. Here's the BBC's Hugh Pym. 
The progress of the vaccination programme in the UK has been widely acclaimed and it always seemed likely that the target of all nine priority groups being offered a first jab by April the 15th would be met. A total of 32.2 million people have had a first dose. NHS England said that 19 out of 20 of those most at risk of the virus have been vaccinated. The pace has slowed this month because of supply issues with the Oxford AstraZeneca jab. Vaccination centres are concentrating on second doses. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning. Welcome to Backchat. I'm Hugh Chewerton and your co-host today is Ada Wong. Ada, good morning to you. Good morning, Hugh. Today we're talking about cross-strait relations and restricting public access to private company information. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said on Sunday the United States is concerned about China's aggressive actions against Taiwan and warned it would be a serious mistake for anyone to try to change the status quo in the Western Pacific by force. Beijing on Thursday blamed the U.S. for tensions after a U.S. warship sailed close to Taiwan. And yesterday, the PLA flew 25 warplanes into Taiwan's air defense identification zone, the largest incursion yet as in the Taiwan Strait continues to escalate. Well, how do cross-strait relations stand now? Could the U.S. abandon strategic ambiguity? After nine, we're going to be discussing changes by the authorities to limit public access to details of directors and secretaries of private companies. How will that affect the due diligence work of auditors and investigations by journalists? Why are there such changes and who could benefit? Let us know your thoughts. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can email backchat at rthk.hk. You can call us on our telephone phone number is 233 We've got a few uh, emails on the topic of uh, those uh, relaxing some of those uh, COVID measures or altering those uh, COVID measures. We'll get to those, I think, uh, about uh, 9 o'clock and probably take it up as a full topic uh, tomorrow. But on uh, cross-strait relations, we're joined now by Ross Feingold, Director of Business Development at the SafePro Group, a security consultancy and former Asia Chairman of Republicans Abroad, and Jean-Pierre Cabestan, who's Chair Professor of Political Science at the Baptist University, uh, Professor Cabestan. Maybe we start with you. Good morning. Thanks Good for morning. thanks for for joining us. So we've seen that this is sort of uh, ramping up uh, in military terms, uh, at least. Uh, how how do you read the temperature at the moment? Uh, how does this compare with? Because uh, as you know, it goes up and down. It has gone up and down for, for for decades now. What would you say was the latest state of play? I think the temperature is getting uh, higher in the Strait. Uh, I think China is uh, trying to test the new uh, U.S. administration, the Biden administration, and its uh, commitment to uh, Taiwan and Taiwan security. Uh, the um, um, incursions which took place yesterday uh, is, uh, well, just another illustration of a strategy which was introduced by the PLA and China last summer, uh, which is uh, both to uh, sort of send a message to Taiwan, uh, uh, not to upgrade too much its relationship with the United States and also to the uh, the United States itself for uh, not moving from uh, uh, an unofficial relationship which, you know, uh, has been uh, uh, changing over the years but which has remained non-official to a more official relationship with, the, with, with Taiwan. Now, uh, talking about the strategic ambiguity issue, I think in the last month of the... Um, Trump administration, 
there's been, I mean, th th there were a lot of discussions whether that strategic ambiguity was serving China, uh, U.S. interests uh, well, whether uh, a clear message to China not to uh, envisage any armed action against Taiwan should be, should be, uh, this message should be uh, getting, uh, you know, more clear. Um, and, and the debate is going on, and my, my take is this, be more clarity, I would say, in uh, the U.S. Uh, commitment to Taiwan security. Uh, but whether this ambiguity is going to be all over lifted uh, remains to be seen. I, and I, and I personally, I doubt it will be. What is interesting, a latest uh, statement made by the uh, Biden administration, including by Anthony Blinken, I think he's, he's been overall uh, rather cautious. Uh, to say where well, we're going to deepen our non-official relationship with Taiwan. So that's something, of course, China objects to. And I think we have to understand the uh, incursions which took place yesterday and the previous incursion in that, in that context, which is to send a message to uh, Washington not to sort of make the non-official regime too official. Um, but at the same time, I think Beijing is aware of the fact that uh, be the Trump administration or the Biden administration behind a closed door and behind the curtain, a lot is going on in terms of improving Taiwan's defense capability, uh, you know, coordinating more, you know, better coordinating the Taiwan's military to the Pentagon and to the U.S. military. Well, we can go back to that later, but. Uh, clearly, uh, the idea is to uh, remain credible and to uh, improve Taiwan's deterrence, but also the U.S. deterrence to any um, military adventure which uh, could come to the mind of the Chinese leader. So that's why I think the preservation of the stability in Taiwan's trade remained the, the top priority of the uh, U.S. administration and, 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 of course, of Taiwan as well. And, and how do you see other Asian countries responding? Uh, well, Japan and, and also the, the ASEAN countries. Yes, I mean, Japan is, uh, is, uh, is in a kind of delicate situation because uh, on the one hand, Xi Jinping has tried to uh, improve uh, uh, China's relation with, with Japan uh, and, you know, uh, there was this plan to uh, organize a state visit there a year ago, but because of COVID it had to be postponed. Uh, uh, but at the same time, um, China is putting more pressure on the Senkaku, you know, those uh, small islands uh, administered by Japan since uh, 1895, which, been, uh, which are, have been claimed by China uh, since the, the 1970s. So, uh, uh, and that is a factor of, the, uh, you know, there's a factor of uncertainty and, and security, which, of course, the, the, the Japanese are unhappy with. Now, regarding Taiwan, which is, which is I would say, for Japan next door, uh, because of the U.S.-Japan uh, treaty and uh, because of all the guidelines which have been adopted in the last uh, uh, 10 years, in particular in 2015, uh, I think Japan's involvement in any kind of Taiwan scenario will be, uh, will be real. Uh, what form it will take, uh, we don't know, uh, but uh, I don't think it's hard to, it's, it's impossible to exclude any kind of logistical support to the U.S. Uh, military in case of a uh, scenario, war scenario in the Taiwan Strait. So, and uh, as you know, the southern islands of uh, Ryukyu, which is Okinawa, uh, in particular Ishigaki, Yunaguni, all those islands have been uh, transformed in order to make them more ready to any kind of uh, contingency uh, in the Taiwan Strait.
And ASEAN and, and the Philippines? Well, ASEAN is a, no, I, don't, I, I think, uh, of course, the Philippines is a, is, is, a, is a security ally of the United States, but I don't see the Philippines being a part of it. It's more Australia, which is a real issue, actually, because uh, because of uh, the uh, U- Australian-U.S. Uh, alliance, you know, uh, originally called ANZUS, uh, and the, the Darwin base now, U.S. Marine base in Darwin, and uh, and also uh, the Australian growing commitment in uh, sec- in the security of the Asia Pacific, in particular participation in some naval exercise in the South China Sea with the Americans. Uh, I think it's uh, it's going to be harder for the Australian to be mentally neutral and, and outside of any kind of uh, you know any kind of if if if, you, if a crisis erupts in the Taiwan Strait. But I have to say we. we uh, personally, I think we're far from it. But, but the uh, you know all these intimidations conducted by the PLA are aimed at is to reach the morale and, and uh, affect the morale of the Taiwanese and to make them think, uh, them think twice about the future and then sort of gradually uh, compel them to think that the only option for the future will be reunification, which is as we know, uh, if we you go to Taiwan, it's far from being the case. I mean, for most Taiwanese. Uh, Taiwan is already independent. Uh, it should should be the master of its future. Should you know decide about what what will be eventually uh, the, the the kind of agreement both sides should should should, should reach. And so that's why there is a, a real uh, conflict which is unsolvable uh, in the foreseeable future. That's why I think it's important to keep peace and stability in the Strait and uh, uh, and and to sort of. Um, um, not to exaggerate the threat of those intimidations, because uh, clearly they are more psychological than anything else. Uh, and what China has been very good at, actually, is to use and to some degree abuse uh, these, uh, the, the use of those uh, gray zones in between war and peace uh, in order to, uh, you know, uh, weaken the uh, will to fight and the will to resist of the other side. Uh, whether it's going to have, uh, you know, to be to be effective, uh, I think remains to be seen because they, uh, it's impossible to to imagine, uh, you know, a war in the Strait without uh, a U.S. involvement. And, and here we're coming back to the U.S.-China rivalry and, and uh, maybe Cold War, I mean, and that's the situation where we are now. Mm. Ross Feingold, good morning to you. Thanks for for, for joining us again. Uh, it, a lot of the headlines is about the you know it's framing this as a cross strait relations in terms of China and the U.S. What's the debate like in in Taiwan at the moment? Oh, well, you know, here in Taipei, uh, you know, people going about their business. You know, one one thing uh, that's very interesting in Taiwan. Uh, when tensions rise or what people outside Taiwan perceive as tensions rising is, it's often different, uh, I say, than uh, the Korean Peninsula. You know, we're very used to when North Korea takes a provocative action, we always get that standard TV shot of, like, people in South Korea and Seoul stopping on the street to see, watch a TV in a store window showing the latest North Korean missile launch. I think people here in Taipei, are, you know, they just go about their daily lives, their business. They, they don't pay attention to the latest statement from China or, or the latest military action or, or military exercises from Taiwan. Now, some people may read into that, that people are just used to this. Uh, and other people may 
take a more pessimistic view, which is that if, if it ever came to hostilities, it's just indicative of uh, a lack of interest in fighting here, and that could be something that China will, will exploit. But you know, as far as Blinken's statement uh, on TV on Sunday, I, I think that was just a, a standard U.S. talking point. It was very consistent with what past administrations have said. Uh, I, I expect uh, he's going to get a bit of criticism from that, uh, from commentators, former Trump administration officials, for example. Uh, they, they said they're probably going to say that uh, the Biden administration missed a chance to take uh, a more stronger position in support of Taiwan, and that it's indicative of the Biden administration not really uh, looking to expand greatly beyond what the Trump administration did vis-a-vis uh, -vis state government-to-government contact. So maybe maintain or just incremental uh, expansion on the Trump administration initiatives. Uh, but, but not necessarily any great expansion. And I think the, the guidelines that were issued uh, late last week as well by the State Department are also indicative of that. You know, it's, it's basically repeating what the reality is as far as interaction between uh, U.S. government and Taiwan officials. In fact, it seemed that the document was at pains not even to refer to the Taiwan side as, as a government. Uh, so again, I think that's indicative of kind of the upper limits of, of the Biden administration's willingness to, to do stuff broadly for Taiwan at this time. Um, so as far as uh, Taiwanese are concerned, you think that the intimidation is not working? I mean, after all, you know, well, having, it's having not, aircraft, it's, yeah. It's a fair question. I mean, it doesn't work on a day-to-day -day basis. Again, it, it's just not something that dominates people's lives. Now, people who who are, are uh, say, in the military or politicians and government decision-makers, of course, they're concerned about this. But, again, it, it's just it, it's not something that dominates people's lives here on, on a regular basis. You know, China's latest threats, you know, it's, it's not something that's the top of the news here. Okay, so, but, but I mean, it is still very unusual for PLA aircraft to be flying over, you know, the air defense identification zone of Taiwan, right? Well, we have to keep in mind that this began in, in 2016 with President Tsai's election and subsequent re-election in 2020. So, uh, you know, the increase in, in, in the scope or the frequency of military exercises, both at sea or in the air, uh, it's something that's been going on now for five years. So again, the public here is also used to that. Uh, you know, so uh, the, the public's not going to stop what they're doing simply because there's more aircraft or there's more exercises this week versus last week or two months ago or six months ago. You know, it, yeah, it used to be that the kind of the internal politics of uh, of Taiwan uh, kind of drove the um, the the cross-strait relations to to some extent, the the ups and downs of the of the Kuomintang in particular. Um, now that President Chai seems fairly settled, is that is that correct? Does that mean that that doesn't really apply anymore? Well, the, uh, you know, she was re-elected by a very large margin mm. in January 2020, along with a, a very healthy majority in, in Taiwan's legislature. So, uh, you know, people here in Taiwan sometimes say it's it's a one-party state. They don't mean that in, in an authoritarian way, per se. It's just a, a factual observation that uh, at, at the central government level, one party uh, dominates both the executive branch and, and, and the legislative branch. Again, you know, that's the reality. So, you know, as far as... Uh, uh, you know, initiatives uh, with foreign policy with the United States, uh, weapons purchases, uh, 
larger defense budget uh, statements made with regard to China. Uh, when it comes from the executive branch, there's full support in the legislative branch by uh, uh, from from the the DPP. So in that regard, uh, it's not it's not something that President Xi needs to worry about. You know, there's not going to be criticism. Uh, and the Guomindang is is just so weak. I mean, they they. First of all, their assets were frozen by, by the government, so they have very little resources uh, to mount publicity campaigns. Uh, but uh, you know, they don't really have a policy uh, on, on, on China. Uh, their, their new chairman came into office last year following the uh, presidential election disaster, uh, said we're going to have a, China, a new China policy, and then when they finally announced one, it was pretty much the same as the previous policy. Uh, and it's not very popular with the public. Uh, so they're, they're there. Uh, you know, they have a small number of seats in the legislature. They still control some of the local governments around the island, and there's a local government election in November 2022. Uh, but uh, people are not uh, also waiting, just like they're not paying attention to what China did or, or said today, they're also not paying attention to what the Guomindang said or did today. So as far as uh, being a driver of, of cross-strait relations, uh, they're, they're just a non-entity at this point. It, does the China policy involve uh, unification? Well, uh, the Guomindang the still kind of adheres to this 92 consensus. You know, we, we can agree that we're part of uh, one China, but we'll, we'll disagree uh, on, on what that definition is. You could call it the PRC, we'll call it the ROC. And that was the policy that w was in place under uh, Ma Zhou for eight years. And uh, Again, it's been rejected by the voters twice in 2016 and 2020. The Guomindang candidates said, uh, if I'm elected, that's the policy I'll pursue. You know, I'll, I'll just maintain what Ma, Ma's policy was. But, you know, the, the, voters, the voters have spoken twice on that. Um, so uh, if the Guomindang can magically come up with some other uh, uh, way to frame the relationship, uh, they might have a chance to get elected. But again, it, it doesn't seem they have one. And also, uh, China uh, still insists that that's the only framework that's acceptable to China. So, you know, that brings us back to why there's just no dialogue anymore between the current government in Taiwan and the government in China, because China says the basis for any dialogue is you have to accept the 92 consensus, and the government in Taipei says, no, we don't accept that. Hmm. Do, do they have uh, d different expectations, different hopes for the Biden administration? Was that a popular uh, a move in the? Uh... Uh, yeah, that's that's such a that's such a great question because in, in the the months leading up to the election in, in, in the United States last November, there was a lot of speculation here in Taiwan that the the, the Thai government had really bet on on Trump's being reelected and. Uh, when it became clear that Biden had won the election, the government here at Taipei was at pains to say, no, we didn't, we didn't make a big bet. We weren't too close uh, to the Trump administration. Uh, now, the reality is there were a lot of proxies for, for the government that were on TV uh, here in Taipei. And I know this because I was on panels with them, and they, uh, they were telling me uh, or telling the audience how, how horrible Joe Biden will be for Taiwan and, and that his son was too close to China because of his business dealings there. Uh, and things of that nature. Uh, so they, they've been trying to strike that right balance with, with the Biden administration ever since Election Day and, and, and the inauguration, for example, by citations to, well, uh, these people in our government met Anthony Blinken uh, you know, five or ten years. 
15 years ago at some seminars, if you know, Tony Blinken remembers that. Uh, uh, so you know, they're trying to say you know, we, we, we don't get involved in U.S. politics. Uh, but on the other hand, there's talk, uh, a lot of speculation that uh, Mike Pompeo will visit Taiwan uh, in the coming months. And uh, whether or not he visits, you could be uh, assured that former Trump administrations will, will uh, officials will visit Taiwan. Uh, there's just a pattern of uh, whoever was in government, when they leave government in the United States, they come visit Taiwan, you know, foreign policy officials, et cetera. So uh, that, that's something that that the, the government here needs to be careful about, because obviously uh, it, it will reignite this debate, like well, you actually prefer the Trump people because you're inviting them to Taipei, giving them a platform to make speeches. Uh, I mean, some people will say that there's, uh, and perhaps Professor Campbell, you want to address this. There is a new attitude uh, in, in in Beijing um, that it won't be browbeaten and won't be won't be forced to uh, back down uh, on Taiwan or on Hong Kong or in the South China Sea, uh, and it's going to stand up and it's going to uh, hold its uh, hold its fight its corner. You know, whether it's uh, whether it's uh, Xinjiang or whether it's uh, COVID and, uh, and so on. Do do you see that? Do you see? Uh, uh, a new boldness, uh, a new uh, resolution, perhaps, uh, among uh, Chinese diplomats? Well, the boldness started uh, some time ago, mm-hmm. I would say, uh, in, in China with Xi Jinping when he uh, announced that uh, uh, we need to, you know, to speed up reunification with Taiwan. Uh, the, um, uh, re- re- the, the renaissance of the Chinese nation won't be complete with, uh, without Taiwan. Uh, at the same time, I think they pretty understand the risks of uh, uh, resorting to military means to solve the Taiwan issue, uh, because uh, they would start World War III, I mean, to put it simply. And that would uh, jeopardize their willingness to become the first uh, uh, superpower, because uh, actually where well, the irony is China has succeeded uh, its uh, reform, its modernization, its rise to, to, to prominence without Taiwan. And um, the, the danger is to, you know, to go a bit too far because of uh, the hubris which has now affected the Chinese leadership. But I think they're aware of the balance of power with the United States, the fact that the United States has invested a lot in Taiwan's defense, something we don't know, but, you know, I mean, which, because it's, under, it's, uh, it's not publicized, but, you know, every year you have 3,000 to 4,000 Pentagon officials going to Taiwan to help the Taiwanese modernizing and, uh, their military and getting ready to any kind of contingency in the strait. So, so the relationship between the United States and, and Taiwan is closer and closer in many ways, uh, even if it remains non-official on the, you know, on the surface. I, I see a lot of continuity also in the U.S. administration's China policy, which is a, a strong signal to Beijing and to Xi Jinping not to go too far, uh, like the you know, uh, reference to the uh, uh, Taiwan Relations Act, of course, but also the six assurances, according to which you know the U.S. will not take a side and uh, or will not try to mediate uh, any uh, uh, the uh, uh, dispute in the Taiwan Strait. Um, so I think uh, the 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 Beijing strategy remains uh, twofold. On on the one hand. Uh, uh, increasing the level of, uh, you know, military pressure and intimidation in order to try to sort of uh, um, uh, reach the, you know, the, the, the morale and, uh, of the Taiwanese. But on the other hand, uh, I think it, has, it remains a priority uh, continued with the United Front strategy, which is aimed at reaching the elites and, and uh, you know, influencing the, 
various segments of the Taiwanese society in, in multiplying the uh, trade and you know uh, uh, economic, but also people-to-people -people relations. Uh, at the same time, ignoring the, the Taiwan administration, which is which is not easy because you know they want to isolate the DPP and the Taiwan administration, but at the same time, the Beijing wants to you know increase, intensify the uh, overall flow of. Uh, Goods, uh, people, and relations uh, across the Taiwan Strait. I mean, which is uh, what is important to mention here is the fact that um, for Taiwan, mainland China remains its first uh, trade partner with around 40% of its export. So, and, and the Taiwan administration, in spite of the go south policy, has not been able to uh, diversify very much uh, Taiwan external trade relations. So, um, so that's the. Uh, an important dimension, which uh, of course the Chinese are going to uh, try to 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 to, to uh, capitalize on. Uh, the the other thing is, uh, I mean, the Biden administration, as you know, has uh, sent very early uh, signals towards Taiwan that they won't change the um, effort uh, made by the previous administration to 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 sort of upgrade the non-official relationship with Taiwan. The fact that Xiao Bikin, you know, the Taiwanese representative of the facto ambassador to be to Washington, was invited to the inauguration of, of uh, ceremony of, of Joe Biden. I think uh, it was an early signal of that. There will be a lot of continuity in the U.S. Uh, Taiwan policy. Uh, now, one thing which has not been mentioned, which is going to sort of uh, relax a bit uh, the relationship between Beijing and uh, Washington, D.C., is the fact that John Kerry is likely to visit China next week, which is an interesting signal that both sides want to sort of uh, put, back the relation, put back the relationship on track and to start with climate change, you know, because John Kerry is in charge of climate change for the Biden administration. And to start, I mean, they will sort of resume talks of what happened in Anchorage, you know, in Alaska a few weeks ago, uh, to sort of um, uh, resume the relationship on an easy task, which is uh, on an easy uh, mm. uh, subject, which is a subject on which both sides agree upon to cooperate uh, so climate change. And okay. we'll see how it goes, but it's going to sort of uh, relax a bit the tension. Right. Uh, both in the Taiwan Strait and in the Sino-U.S. relationship. Finding some common ground there. Well, uh, Professor Campestan, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Jean-Pierre Campestan, Chair Professor of Political Science at the Baptist University. And thank you very much to Ross Feingold, Director of Business Development at the Safe Pro Group, a security consultancy, former chair, Asia Chairman of Republicans Abroad. We're going to be talking about access to uh, private company information with David Webb. Uh, after the news at uh, 9, stick around. The weather mainly fine. Hot temperatures up to about 30 degrees. Uh, the latest reading is 25 Celsius with a relative humidity now of 77%. Communities and the fishing industry. The government says the work will begin in about two years. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. You're listening to Backchat this Tuesday morning with Ada Wong and Miku Chuatin. We were talking about cross-strait relations in the uh, first part of the programme uh, today. We wanted to turn to a Hong Kong issue uh, between now and uh, 9.30. David Webb uh, has uh, joined us in our central studio. Uh, we're looking at uh, a decision by the administration to uh, alter the uh, rules on inspection arrangements for the company's register. There's been a lot of uh, criticism over this, uh, uh, information, uh, some personal information, 
information about directors on the uh, company's register would be uh, no longer available under the, these uh, proposals. Uh, we'll be talking to uh, David Webb about the uh, rights and wrongs to that. We want to hear from you as well, of course. You can email backchat at rthk.hk. You can call us on 233-88266 or you can go to our Facebook page and comment there. That's backchat and rthk radio 3. Just before we get to that, some, as promised, some uh, comments on uh, other issues, COVID-related, and I think uh, in particular um, those uh, new suggestions that uh, came from the uh, chief executive yesterday on the need for vaccinations um, uh, and the benefits given to uh, people with uh, vaccinations have caught the imagination of our listeners. I think we'll do it as a full topic tomorrow. Uh, but uh, a few preliminary thoughts. Alison says, I think the government's proposal to relax COVID restrictions for restaurants and bars, providing their staff have been vaccinated, makes sense. But here's my question. Can restaurant or bar owners effectively force their staff to take the vaccine by, for example, threatening them with dismissal for non-compliance? Perhaps one of your guests or listeners can shed light on this. Thanks. That's for, from uh, Alison. John says, I am absolutely shocked. Here we are. Welcome to dictatorship. CE mentions that relaxation of opening hours of restaurants, as well as the number of people allowed to seat in a table, is related to the staff of the restaurant being fully vaccinated, as well as patrons to have received at least the first shot. I'm absolutely shocked and disgusted. If I do work in a restaurant and I won't get vaccinated, the restaurant can't obtain the advantages, so I will be terminated? Question mark. As a patron, if I'm not vaccinated, I can't enter a restaurant and have dinner? Is this legal or is it against basic law to restrict freedom of choice and movement? Can a law expert uh, give an answer? That's uh, from uh, John. Uh, and Jay says, in other words, if you don't get vaccinated, you don't have a job and this will spread. And uh, Robin says this was in relation to a, a discussion about uh, reliable uh, sources. Uh, thanks for the correction. Apologies to New Delhi TV. Uh, while I'm at it, I could make my own recommendation for more balanced info on COVID in China. I would point to the recent Sinica a uh, po podcast episode called China's COVID-19 Response and the Virus's Origins with Deborah Seligson. Uh, great stuff from Sinica. They and Backchat are my main go-tos for Hong Kong and China audio discussion. That is uh, from Robin and uh, Bernadette uh, says uh, has uh, attaches some info from the uh, Daily Mail. That's a story about the, um, the the controversy over the, which is slightly confusing, I've got to say, over the uh, the efficacy of the uh, Sinovac vaccine and uh, what was said and what was reported wrong. Uh, as I say, we'll turn to that in full tomorrow. David Webb, first of all, good morning to you. Morning. Thank you very much indeed for, 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 for joining us once again. So um, basically what we're talking about, as I say, is uh, the, uh, changing the uh, inspection arrangements for the, for the uh, company register, implementing a, a new inspection regime, which will restrict the amount of personal information uh, that's uh, given about uh, company directors. Well, why are you concerned about this? Well, we, we went through this argument in 2012 to 2013, and, I, and, and we won, basically. The, the government withdrew uh, the proposed subsidiary legislation that they wanted to table to allow blanking out uh, part of the ID numbers and also allowing uh, directors to use a um, non-residential address for public display. Um, and at the time, the people opposed to it, not, not just myself and other investors, but also business professionals involved in due diligence, anti-money laundering, know-your-client kind of business, um, sponsors of IPOs, 
uh, um, uh, uh, small and medium enterprises looking at their customers and suppliers and thinking about their credit risks and wanting to know whether the company they're dealing with is run by an individual who's got a trail of corporate bankruptcies behind him um, and, um, and and a journalist association and a for, you know foreign correspondence club and others were all opposed to it and actually the government withdrew it because uh, they realized that there was enough opposition from the business sector in LegCo that, is, that it wouldn't be allowed to stand now it's back um, and um, you know, there's, nothing has changed about the principles involved. The opposition is still there, perhaps not in LegCo, but from the media and others who use the registries um, uh, for proper purposes to obtain information. Um, they, they will find it harder uh, to uncover uh, wrongdoing, um, uh, fraud, corruption and so forth to investigate the uh, assets of families of, of state officials, for example, which they, they have used it for that purpose in the past. Um, and, and, and um, the, you know, the government has, has done nothing to address that. Now, I think these registers should be fully open without a paywall. Um, that's what's happened in the UK, New Zealand, Denmark, many other places um, where you can, you don't even have to pay because although there is a minor cost of putting the servers online, they've already digitized the records anyway and, and um, uh, the greater public good is served by the transparency involved. I mean, it costs money to maintain public parks, but you are not charged when you walk in them uh, and this is on a similar level of um, public good. Um, the the uh, proposal is uh, to... In two, in two parts, I have some sympathy with not uh, having to disclose your residential address, particularly because of, of personal security reasons. My residential address is in the register if you look hard enough. Um, um, and, um, you know, I don't think that journalists necessarily would want their residential addresses on a register of journalists. They might be happier if it was their business address. Um, and I understand in the UK that you can you don't have to give the personal address. That is that is correct. So so you know it does make it harder to distinguish individuals, of course, because thousands of companies can be based in a in a letterbox address, basically a company secretary office, where actually the directors are never present. Mm. Um, they just deal with it by mail, and they might live outside Hong Kong. Um, but still, um, you know, they're, they're, I think that part of the proposal one could live with if we could be certain about which individuals we're looking at. And you can't be certain without the full identity number or passport number of the uh, people involved. And to be able to take that number and then look it up um, use, using other registers, uh, such as the LAN register. Or to take another example, the vehicle licensing register. As you know, one of your colleagues is currently being prosecuted for looking up a vehicle license uh, owner when trying to report on the Yuen Long attacks of uh, 21st July 2019. And, um, you know, if you, if you were able to ascertain the full ID number, which you currently can, um, then you're able then to look up um, whether they are directors of companies, whether they own land, uh, whether they're involved in the small house uh, um, uh, trading that goes on up in the new territories and so on. Okay. 
Okay, so I mean, there's lots, lots of issues there. So what the, what, what, the, what the government says is that they will, so there will be, that under this plan, there will be a, uh, a, a personal correspondence uh, address. It may not be the mm. residential where, you are, where your home is, but there will be a, a, a personal yes. address. And there will be partial uh, identification numbers. Uh, so um, there will be, um, you know, the start of your ID card, basically, or three digits from, from your ID card. They say that's enough to identify someone. Um, well, it's not. Those, those two pieces of information, uh, that uh, the uh, um, that should be sufficient to enable searchers to ascertain the identity of the director concerned. So they will be able to work it out. But you say not. No. No, David, you have done a test. I've done I, a test. I, I, yes. <laughs> I've read your website reports. <laughs> yes, Ada. So, so, look, you know, I did a simple test, right? I said, let's prove how easy it is to find collisions in the identity codes if you only, if, if you blank out three of the digits, which the company's registry does on its... With the same address? Uh, well, the, the address is, is you, draw, you triangulate with the, with the, no, uh, but with the address. It, you can't get the addresses simply by searching um, on the uh, director's name. You have to drill down multiple levels and pull documents and pay every time you get a document before you can even read one of those documents uh, and look at their address. And if, if it happens to, if it's now allowed to be a, um, a secretarial address, which could house tens of thousands of companies, then that's not going to help you. So um, um, I searched for Chan Chi Kung, which um, your listeners may recognise as a common name in Hong Kong. They probably know somebody called Chan Chi Kung, and it's almost certainly not the same person that another listener knows. Uh, there, there are thousands of them, and hundreds of them have been company directors. Um, there are, uh, in, in my results of that search, it came up with 245 records, of which 217 had unique ID numbers, um, uh, and but when you mask them with uh, masking the three digits that the registry currently does, and you can see the results on website.com, um, then um, I found eight pairs uh, that look the same but are in fact different people with different ID numbers underneath. And in fact, in two of those pairs, they only differed by not three digits but two digits. So if you had if you had unmasked the, the next digit, you might not have got the uh, the right person. Um, and, you know, there's a reason why they're called identity numbers. It's that they're only identical if, they, if you have the whole number. You, ha you have a unique number that nobody else has. That's the purpose. It's, it's, it's not a password. It's not a secret. I published my ID number um, years and years ago in, when, in the first round of this battle to make the point I've not suffered any consequences from publishing my, my ID number. It's still on my website. Uh, if you go to About Us, you can look it up. Um, and, um, you know, the government actually should publish a complete list of ID numbers and names, nothing more than that, just names and corresponding ID numbers, uh, and use those whenever they appoint somebody to a committee, for example. If a Chanchi Kung gets appointed to a committee these days, I have no idea who it is. And it could be somebody appointed to, for example, the, uh, the District fight, fight Crime Committee and is now going to be a voter in the election committee. Um, you know, these Quite people, likely, yes. <laughs> you know, these, there, there are, you know, hundreds of nobodies on these committees and the government names people but doesn't tell you who they really are. 
okay, what okay, so what what the government says is that things uh, have changed. You mentioned that uh, that earlier uh, consultation and the one in 2009. Uh, the, the government statement says, in recent years, there's been a rising community concern over whether personal information contained in public registers are adequately protected, especially in the light of increased reported cases of doxing and personal data uh, misuse. And it quotes the Office of the Privacy Commissioner for Personal Data, uh, saying that uh, the government has to implement the previous proposal to limit the disclosure of um, uh, um, identification numbers and residential addresses, because that was a consideration in 2019. Do you think things have changed? I mean, I know you're, you're strongly on one side. Well, they haven't, uh, they think, haven't demonstrated that... what harm can come from knowing somebody's ID number, OK? What harm has come to me from the public having full access on my website to my ID number or to anyone else in the regis company's registry? So you accept about the addresses? You the, the addre well, no, actually. I mean, I, I have sympathy with it, and if they're going to... As long as they keep the full because ID number... you can just number, give a correspondence address. As I say, they do it yes. in other places. Yes. You, you just give an address. Right, and if you can't contact somebody through that address um then then you can go to court and, but you know so so i've got sympathy with that part yeah okay. but well, um, what about the protection of personal data but, but the i but the is, id is that number, an issue to you protection of personal data the, the id number on its own um only gives you access to other public registers of public information when you set up a company and become a director you are granted great privileges you are allowed to trade with limited liability that means that if a company goes bust, you're not liable for its debts. And the, the, with that privilege comes responsibility of um, being known uh, to anyone who might have an interest in dealing with you, either through that company or through other companies that you control and direct. And so um, that, that's the principle of, of transparency adopted in open registers elsewhere. And whether it's land... And, and researching the uh, illegal structures and, and subdivided properties owned by officials and their wives, for example, or whether it's uh, some other issue, uh, the, the public and, and the media, the fourth estate, should have access to that information. Um, and there, there, it's not been shown that there's any great harm from knowing information. Information doesn't hurt people. There are laws against um, uh, doing illegal things like torching someone's house, beating them up, um, um, harassing them in some way. Uh, that, you know, all, the laws are already there to deal with that. Um, uh, uh, but um, uh, knowing, knowing my ID number, you know, there are some companies, there are some utilities at low levels of the uh, economic um, uh, system um, that, for example, mobile phone providers that will simply ask you your ID number and treat it like a password. And that's, that's quite irresponsible but they make a commercial judgment that they will compensate the person if there's any abuse, uh, an impersonation by someone else trying to cut off their mobile phone or something. You know, they'll, they'll make them whole. Um, and, and it's very rare that anyone abuses a number in that way. Um, if, if you try to open a bank account, you don't need an ID number. You need to show them your ID card. It's a big difference. Uh, so you can't mess around with someone's um, money um, simply by knowing their ID number, you've got to actually show them the card. So, you know, it's, you know, I, I, as, you, as you know, I've got a fair bit of money and I've not noticed any of it missing because my ID number is public. <laughs> OK. All right. Um, the, uh, another point uh, made by the administration uh, is that... Um, uh, 
I, th- I think Caroline says something like, "Why should journalists be treated uh, differently?" Uh, according to the, uh, the, the, the 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 new legislation, uh, if you have a uh, if you have a good reason uh, to uh, to look for this information, uh, you you can access it, and that includes shareholders of a company and public officers or public bodies, including law enforcement agencies, trustees in bankruptcy, uh, liquidators, inspectors under the trustee ordinance, the CEO, and anti money laundering and counter terrorist financing ordinance uh, etc uh, yeah with the principle that you know if you have a good reason a good legal reason uh, to be doing this you, you are allowed to do it but if you're just a nosy journalist well you can't yeah it's a, it narrows it down very considerably what if you're a sponsor of an IPO and you want to do your due diligence and, and check whether the uh, director's being fully forthcoming with you about his past failures and um, business problems. Um, you, you need to be able to do your own homework on this with or without his uh, consent. Um, but but and, for sure, David, on, on, and, that, on that regard, I, I think, uh, you know, if you're a sponsor of the IPO, you should have, you know, the, an ID copy of that director who will be a listed company director, right? Yeah, but that, that doesn't uh, necessarily get you the information that you need. Um, you need to be able to to search a lot of registers um, here and overseas, um, the, and you need the full the full number um, to, to to do that. So, and also there are sort of practical issues. How do you prove to the registry if you're a shareholder of a company that you are the person on that register who is trying to search for the directors? I mean, what do you have to do then? You're going to have to set up another system to prove your identity to the register before you can do a search. So it's a whole new level of complexity and charging going to be involved, um, r- rather than just a simple, open and transparent approach that, uh, so that anyone um, who is either an indirect shareholder or a potential shareholder can do, can do the same search. Um, so, you know, it's not enough. The, the, the government uh, last night put out a late-night press release answering my, or trying to, to answer my article yesterday i don't know if you've seen it yet um but it was completely um misleading again um because um they said oh well we've we've looked at all the current directors of current companies um and we've looked at whether they're um, you know there how many matches there are based on full names in english and or chinese well you know some some um directors use variations of their chinese name slightly different characters or don't put a chinese name in at all in the, in the uh, Chinese character field, um, and others miss out names. So you know, I, as, an, as, as a person without a Chinese name, I could still put in David Webb, DM Webb, D. Michael Webb, uh, and still get a company registered. Um, you know, uh, so uh, you, you, you need to be able to use I- unique identity numbers to search and not just uh, uh, names that match with many people. So, David, how did um, the uh, overseas registries overcome this issue? Uh, or is this an issue? Uh, the chief executive said, you know, this amounts to weaponization of personal data and information. No, it's not. That's just, that's just so emotive um, and, and uh, fake news. I mean, look, this is a chief executive who says that she doesn't want fake news. And yet, if you mask information, you're more likely to get uh, mistaken identities and reports that misidentify people as directors when they're not. Um, and, and, and fake news coming out of that. I mean, it's, it's really ironic, you know, two years ago, she on her own passed emergency regulations to require people to remove their masks in public assemblies um, so that they could be identifiable to deter crime, purportedly. Now, you can debate whether that was the effect, but um, 
she wanted to unmask people, and now she's allowing directors to mask themselves up in the registry, um, which will incentivise crimes um, of of fraud and um, and corruption and money laundering and so on, um, rather than go for transparency. Let's have transparency everywhere. Sunshine is the best disinfectant. Um, and uh, and take the masks off the ID numbers. Okay, I'm just looking at the um, uh, that that uh, statement. Thank you very much indeed that, that that you mentioned. Yeah, so it does engage directly with you with your hmm. uh, with, with your study. I mean, it's basically among the other things, it, it says is that you did your study wrong. Uh, that you were working on the assumption that uh, any three numbers from the uh, no, ID I was taking. Card? I was only using. The, the three numbers which are currently redacted when you search the registry. I didn't pick, I didn't selectively pick different, uh, different three numbers on each masking. It's, it's, it's the, currently, if you search the registry, then you get... Um, but they're going to be, they will be redacting, yeah. they will be showing you the first three numbers. Yeah, so cu- currently they, they mask the letter, sorry, they, they, they mask the um, third, f- fourth and fifth numerals out of six numerals okay and the government says in future they're going to mask the fourth fifth and sixth numerals right that doesn't make a difference because the first in each, three they say the first three they're going to show the first three yes yeah, sorry yes yes and they're going to mask the fourth fifth and sixth yeah okay they're going to shift the masking but that makes no difference assuming you've used up all the numbers they say the results therefore are not directly comparable <laughs> well not, they are, because in statistics and probability, you've still got 1,000 possible matches if you mask out three numbers, OK? And uh, assuming you've used the whole space um, of numbers, which they have for, for, for many of the letters, A, B, C, D, E, they ran out a long time ago. In fact, they're going to be running out of single-letter combinations quite soon. Uh, in, a, in about 10 years' time, they might have to use routinely two-letter combinations at the beginning. Um, so, so which ones they choose to mask out as a policy in the registry won't make a difference to the problem. And the second thing is um, that they did their search wrong. I did mine right, uh, because if you're interested in the um, background of a person, you don't just want to know their current directorships of current companies. You want to know their former directorships of current companies and their former directorships of dissolved companies. You want to know if this person has left a trail of problems behind, um, walking away from creditors, not paying wages um, on on insolvency, leaving it to to the public funds to compensate employees, and and then setting up another restaurant next door or or, um, even in the same premises with a new company and so on. So, you know, there's... You, you, okay. do, you, need, you need the whole um, history. Yeah, now, currently, currently um, there are 3 million total companies, of which 1.4 million are still alive. So that's quite a large number. And I just don't think they've done their search properly. I have no confidence in their IT people. If you look at the website, it was designed in 1999. <laughs> um, and I was able to um, access the full ID numbers simply by looking at the source code, because although they think they've masked them, they haven't. <laughs> yes. um, I mean, David, it's, it's just it? comical, yes. You, you yeah. hacked into it. And no, I didn't hack it. I just press Control-U, by the way, in your browser, and then you can look at the underlying code. And it's got all sorts of interesting comments wow. in it and full ID <laughs> numbers of the, of the numbers that appear to be masked when you look at the... So uh, you can see all the... <laughs> Yes, it's, yeah, that, it's that bad. Well, they haven't, they haven't, yeah. All right, anyway. So I don't think they know how to do a proper uh, SQL or MySQL database query. I'd be happy to help them if they provide the data. 
Okay. What one thing is that uh, the government has uh, linked um, this sort of um, uh, you know searching of companies' details uh, to journalist behavior, but um, you you actually highlighted the fact that you know the the finance uh, the financial companies and the finance sector actually does these searches all the time in due diligence. Yeah. Now, uh, have you heard of them voicing their concern? Well, they're a shy lot, aren't they? Because they're regulated. They don't like the possibility of regulators coming back at them or the government through the regulators. Everyone's keeping their heads down these days, Ada. That's why I'm the only one on your show this morning <laughs> talking about this. They couldn't, even the government didn't send anyone to respond, and I'm sure you would have invited them. Um, uh, but um, it, the, uh, you know, it's... They are they are going to be unhappy. There's already been statements from, I believe, the Foreign Correspondents Club and the Hong Kong Journalists Association about this, and many articles written already about this. FT, Bloomberg, and so on. Yes, uh, it's, it's it's attracting international attention, as it did last time. And you know, if they if they get away with this. They will also be doing the same thing with land registry and other registries which journalists have used in the past to piece together the uh, property holdings, undisclosed in some cases, um, of, um, of, of Hong Kong officials. Um, in, you know, land in the new territories near development areas, for example. I can think of one uh, uh, senior official who had that issue um, through, through his spouse, or used to, um, and, and so on. So... Um, you know, it's uh, this is a thin end of the wedge, um, and it's uh, part of a general crackdown on the public's um, right to know. And, and you know, they Hong Kong is, you know, we're hearing, despite all the recent um, uh, changes, stroke uh, closing of loopholes, stroke improvements, uh, according to your taste, um, that Hong Kong is still um, a free market with freedom of information and so forth. Well, let's see that. Let's see the freedom of information. Um, before Carrie Lam took office, she committed to a supporting a freedom of information law, and we still don't have one. It's not even on the drawing board. She, she actually went to the Journalist Association and signed a pledge on that, I believe, and also an archives law so that we can later on see how government officials have been working on these All things. All right, well, well you, uh, I mean, in that statement that you, uh, that you mentioned that was issued uh, yesterday, uh, last night, half past 11 last night, they, they work late hours, don't they? Well, uh, so did anyway, I. <laughs> sure. Uh, they did say... Uh, in the last paragraph does say, there's a, isn't there a, some hope there? It says, in the meantime, taking into account comments from members of the LegCo panel on financial affairs, we will look into the possibility of providing additional info, information for searches to identify directors concerned in the rare circumstances of different directors having identical partial identification numbers as well as Chinese and or English full name without compromising the principle of protecting the full IDN of uh, and the full identification number of directors for the protection this of personal so they, so if that if that does if the situation that you've described does arise, then they would sort it out. Then How? it's a case by case basis. Well, that's ridiculous. We, do, we just need an online. Just open the database, put it online, like the UK has. You can search it. They've got an API to, for other people to search it, um, and and tear down the paywall. Uh, you know, it, it really shouldn't be difficult. Publish all the ID numbers. I don't care about the addresses. So. If you want to strike a balance, that's the place to go. Um, allow correspondence addresses. 
Um, but constantly we hear this, the, this, you, this phrase of the government striking a balance, and it's usually striking a balance between doing the right thing and the wrong thing, and that's not good enough. We want to do the right thing here. All right, one more comment from uh, Alan of Lama, who says, back chat. So the government asserts that they will keep company information secret because of doxing. The only people I've ever heard of who were attacked or harassed after their details were made public are pro-democracy supporters, and it seems very likely that the information was released by or with the blessing of the government. That's from uh, Alan of, of Lama. Uh, David Webb, in the meantime, many thanks for uh, joining us. Congratulations you. on your recent appointment. You were... Uh, a, a, oh, reappointed to the takeovers panel after 20 years, yes. Yeah. <laughs> good, good. Still fighting. <laughs> yeah, still fighting, and good to see you uh, looking well. Uh, David Webb there, editor of website.com, a shareholder activist. A few more comments just on our first topic uh, this morning, talking about um, uh, tensions across the Taiwan Strait, as uh, Bowen puts it. In an email, he says, from a psychological and strategic standpoint, the mainland ought to have remained on a high, high alert level as regards Taiwan from 2000. Yeah, Chen Shui-bian was elected president, kicking off finally the process of having two equally credible political parties capable of forming a government. If democracy is allowed to take root and mature, obviously unification could become much more complicated and difficult. Fast forward 21 years, and now we have the U.S. Admiral John Aquilino, nominated to be commander of the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, telling the Senate Armed Services Committee this March that although the outgoing commander, Philip Davidson, had said China could attack Taiwan as soon as six years from now, quote, my opinion is that this problem is much closer to us than most think and we have to take this on, unquote. Uh, Admiral Aquilino did not go so far as Senator Tom Cotton, who said Beijing could opt to attack Taiwan as early as next year, presumably after hosting the Winter Olympics in February 2022, just as how Russia invaded and occupied Crimea in 2014, just days after it hosted the Winter Olympics. Asked by Tom Cotton why is it so important to Beijing that they annex Taiwan, Admiral Aquilino replied they view it as their number one priority. The rejuvenation of the Chinese Communist Party is at stake, very critical as they look at the problem, unquote. Obviously, being so close to Taiwan, we should all be on the Kiviv. That's from uh, Bowen and... Um, Matthew says, when one steps above the historic and political hyperbole and hysteria and looks at the Taiwan situation, it's clear that for decades it's been an independent country with its own system and leadership that has no relationship to mainland China. When this is finally recognised and rectified, it will seem absurd that for so many years the world tiptoeingly appeased the CCP by pretending to believe it somehow belonged to them. And uh, TC on uh, Facebook says mainland China's current interpretation of the so-called 92 consensus uh, is a great example of decontextualization. The main principle of the 92 consensus is that both sides are free to interpret the meaning of one China. This is effectively a diplomatic way to agree to disagree. Neither side is supposed to force its interpretation on the other side. This means that the Republic of China can theoretically claim that it has sovereignty of mainland China. The original agreement has never been one country, two systems. That's from uh, TC. Thank you very much indeed for that. Ada, thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, this morning. These the weather before we go. Many fine hot temperatures up to 30 degrees, 26 degrees at the moment. Relative humidity now 76%. This quarter's demand notes for rates and government rent have been posted. 
The rates concession has already been reflected, but there is no concession for government rent. Remember to pay by April 30th or you'll have to pay a surcharge. The demand note also shows the rateable value after the general revaluation. Any objections to the new rateable value must be submitted in writing by the end of May. If you haven't received the demand note, please call the Rating and Valuation Department on 21520111. And 34, the news with Samantha Butler. The chairman of the Equal Opportunities Commission, Ricky Chu, says society needs to be careful not to discriminate against unvaccinated people. He was commenting after the government announced so-called vaccine bubbles, allowing people to visit care homes and easing restrictions for bars, restaurants and cross-border travel. He told RTHK that as long as the government's anti-epidemic measures were reasonable,